Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one. Hopefully you do. After all, we are a Bible church. We learned last night, Bible is our middle name. So we are in Mark, the end of Mark chapter 6. And as you're turning there, um, I've been learning about this book. I don't know if you've paid attention to this or not, but many different authors have been noting the trend that's going on within young people today. And uh, one particular author, a man by the name of David Kinnaman, in his book, You're Losing Me, uh, notes that millions of young people today, those in their late teens and early 20s, are leaving the faith in droves. Matter of fact, some statistics are just quite astonishing and eye-opening. Um, even just a few years ago, I remember Vody Bauckham, he had given a statistic that 88% of children that are raised in Christian homes today will leave the faith by the time they're in their early to mid-20s, if not their late teens. So we've been looking at this and saying, well, what's, what's wrong? What are, we, what are we doing wrong? What is wrong in, in church and what is going on? And, and it's interesting, he's not the only author that has noted this. Another man by the name of Dan Kimball wrote a book called They Like Jesus But Not the Church and have noticed that many of these young people, the problem that they have is not so much with Jesus. Uh, they love Jesus. They love how great of a guy he is, and teaching, and compassionate, and how he, he shames the, the hypocrites, and how he, he really reach out, reaches out to those that are, that are disenfranchised, that are just low and going through a difficult time. They love that about Jesus. What they struggle with is the church and God's people. I've seen that time and time again play out. I mean, and we all know that. We know that we're imperfect people. We know that we sin. We know that we make mistakes. We know that we sometimes aren't on our game. We're not walking in the Spirit. We're in the flesh. We, we say stupid stuff. We do dumb things. We, we know this. And, but people, it helps us to, to remember that people are looking at us. And as they're looking at us and they're reading us, what are they reading? What can people see about Jesus in your life? Think about that. You know, it's been said that sometimes Christians are the only Bibles that any, some people will ever read. What do they read about Jesus in your life? What do you value? How's your conversation? At your workplace? With your friends, your family, your entertainment choices? You might acknowledge Jesus with your lips, but are you denying Him with your lifestyle? It's a question that we all have to ask ourselves. Because you know, what I believe is that many of these young people are noticing something that is glaringly obvious. Or that we miss. Actually, it's not glaringly obvious. It's a blind spot to us. And that's we are very religious, but we don't cultivate a saving relationship. See, we talk about that all the time. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Now, I'd like, I'd like us to really try to draw that out here for a moment. moment. What, is, what do we mean by that? Because if we use the term religion, what do we mean by the term religion? Because Christianity is a religion. Just like Hinduism is a religion. Islam is a religion. Jainism is a religion. Judaism is a religion. These are religions. They're systematic ways of understanding certain faiths. But there is another way of understanding it that we're, when we use that term, we're saying it's how man gets to God. What are the steps that we need to take in order to get to God? That's what religion really means. It's a systematic understanding of the steps that we need to take in order to get to God. Now, we say, is Christianity fit that? No, and here's why. Because we aren't telling how people can get to God as if we can get up to heaven, but we're showing how God came down to us. See, we can't do anything to get to God in and of ourselves. We can't work our way to God. We'll never be good enough. Like you see within Islam, these guys who, uh, like Wahhabism, which is a form of Islamic fundamentalism, these individuals are the guys who blow themselves up because they believe that they, this is their, the way that they can get guaranteed to heaven. I am guaranteed to go to heaven if I do this act doesn't matter what sin I've done. If I do this, if I sacrifice myself, I'll get to heaven. I will work my way to heaven. Work my way to heaven. It's my act is so meritorious in the sight of Allah that he has to accept me. But see, that's not what Christianity is about. 
There's no good act that we can do, no matter how sacrificial, that will ever enable us to get to God. So when we hear the term religious, that's what, that's what people are referring to, getting to God. We have what we, a saving relationship and that God came to us. And then we accept what He has done. And then we live in the light of that relationship. We're going to draw that out today as we look within our passage. We're going to see Jesus challenging this man-made religion and looking at how we can have a relationship. So we're going to look at religion versus relationship today. And I invite you to turn with me, if you're not there already, to the end of John, Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading all the way from verse 53 up through chapter 7 into verse 30. And it is our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. So I'd invite you to stand with me as we read the Word together. The Holy Spirit, through John Mark, says, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandment, commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that, that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person comes from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence eager to understand your word, to apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to know what it means 
to have a relationship with you. Lord, we don't want to be religious. We want to bask in the light of your presence, cultivating that relationship that you have enabled us to have through the sacrifice of your son. So Lord, today, if it's a sin that's holding us back, if we're going through suffering that's preventing us from seeing or hearing and understanding the word, Lord, please channel all of our focus to you right now. Help us to see you high and lifted up and help, us, help our ears to be ready to hear what it is that you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So let's jump right into our text. So I'd keep your Bibles open, your eyes nimble, as we walk through this together. Now we're going to not start in verse 53, but we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 7. And I want to be able to set the stage with you as we go through this to bring their culture to us today so we can truly see who they are and what's going on. Now, Jesus' fame had spread. Remember, we've talked about this. Word had gotten out that he was a healer. And a lot of people were flocking to him. I mean, you can almost imagine just paparazzi coming to him. They They were wanting to see Jesus and touch him, to get close to him. And of course, whenever a movement of God like that begins to happen, the other religious teachers get jealous. They get envious. So they go uh, and start off on a trek to find Jesus. So let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to walk through this piece by piece. Now when the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the, the who's who among the religious elite. These were the educated elite of the day. They were known for their godliness and their piety. Um, they were also kind of like a moral police. I don't know how else to put it. Um, so these guys were also, in, in some ways, the leaders of the community itself. So they're kind of a religious, political group of individuals who are known for their zeal and their piety. So now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, so they, they have come from Jerusalem and they've gone up to Gennesaret to see and find out about Jesus. Now they were coming from, who had come from Jerusalem, verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, here's where we get pretty interesting, and I'd like us to pause for a moment, but keep your, you know, your, your page open to that. We're looking at these individuals who are very religious. Now, as we're going to walk through this passage, we're going to trek through it, we're going to see what a religious person looks like. And a religious person starts off like this, and I, and I have this within your notes. A religious person or religion says, I'm righteous, therefore I'm accepted. Here's what I mean by that is we, ha- we think that we have to be good enough before we ever come to God. You ever notice that? We all think we have to clean up our act. I've met this, I don't know if you've encountered this, but I have. When I've talked to people about Jesus, they said I'm not ready. In other words, they think I have to clean and be pure before I ever enter into the sight of God. See, that's what religion tells us, is that I'm religious, therefore I'm accepted, or I'm, I'm righteous, therefore I'm accepted. So I have to do all of these things to be accepted. Now, what that means is this. I'm going to draw this out a little bit further. It means observing outwardly, without obeying inwardly. It means observing outwardly without obeying inwardly. Now see, these Pharisees were good at the letter of the law. They understood all of those things, and they cared all about the outward conformity, not inward transformation. And that's what religion does. It's outward conformity. Toe the line. If you step out of line, you're in trouble. Now, that, this, uh, um, this observing outwardly comes out in three different ways here, and we're going to see that within the text. First of all, what we see is in, as they observe outwardly is they are regulating righteousness. Regulating righteousness. And here's what they do. Look at verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They're there on a witch hunt. They're just waiting for Jesus and his disciples to mess up so they can step in and smack them down. So they don't care about what's going on. They don't care about the miracles, which blows my mind. People are getting healed left and right. I mean, people are being transformed. People that their their legs were, were, were diseased, they're jumping up. And the Pharisees, they don't care. They don't care at all. They're saying, no, 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 no. You're not following the ceremony. We found something on you now. We've got something on you. See, they're, they're busy regulating righteousness. That's what religious people do. They want to make everybody toe the line. And if anybody steps out, they're just 
seeking for an opportunity to find you in sin. You ever been around someone like that? Maybe you're that way. I think we've all been around people like that. They're just waiting. I, I know when I first became a Christian, and I don't know how your experience was, but I was, I didn't know a lot. I'd grown up in, in a, just a very common, ordinary country church, and uh, I, I was looking for people that had zeal. So I, I had met some Christians. Um, I mean, I, I grew up with Christians in my high school, and there was one girl that I knew loved Jesus. And uh, when I went to my first year of college, it was three hours away from my home, she said, you need to find people with my denomination. I didn't know any better. She was praising Jesus. I mean, she was pretty vocal. The people I went to church with didn't seem to be as vocal. So I, I looked at the outward, not the inward. So I get to college, and I encounter someone from her denomination. And uh, next thing I know, I'm starting to get a list of do's and don'ts of what I can do and what I can't do. I can't listen to this CD. I can't listen to that band. I can't watch that TV show. And at first, honestly, I needed that. I needed that. I, I, I had some of these things weren't very good for my Christian walk. And I started to try to learn what the Christian music was and what I could watch. And then I found it, then they kept coming at me even further. I can't wear these shorts. I can't go to that store. I can't read that book. I can't do this. I can't do that. And I started getting more troubled. And I started to hurt. And I, it, hard, it was hard because they looked outwardly so godly. But I was, I was dying on the inside because I was constantly monitoring this list of laws. And I'd, I'd lost all semblance of any type of relationship with Jesus. I was so busy trying to conform to this outward external and, and trying to find rules to obey that I wasn't living for Jesus and enjoying Jesus. Have you ever been there? I mean, I think we've all been there. I mean, that's how religion works. And when we come to Jesus, we see that. And I've seen that happen with people that do come to Jesus. And well-meaning brothers and sisters come alongside them and start to teach them or, quote, disciple them. And all they do is give them the list of laws that they themselves have inherited. And rather than teaching them what it means to walk with Jesus and be discerning in how to apply the Word of God to their life, they become a cosmic cop ready to police and bash anyone who breaks their rules. Now see, this is what, not only do the Pharisees, are they regulating righteousness, but they're trusting in their tradition. That's another, that's another sign of a religious individual. They're trusting in their tradition over the truth of God's Word. Trusting in tradition. Look at the text. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands according to the, what's the word there? Tradition. Look at your text. Don't look at me. Don't let me give you all the answers. Be good Bereans. What's it say? A little louder, church. Tradition. Tradition. <laughs> Thank you. Tradition. Tradition. When we elevate tradition over truth, we've become religious and lost relationship. Now, we have to be very honest with ourselves because we as Protestant individuals that are in a Bible church say, we follow the Bible. It's in our title. We love the Word of God. We don't follow tradition like some people in other faiths do. Not so. We are just as guilty as following tradition. We just don't codify it. Now, here's what I mean. We look at Roman Catholics... And we say they have popes and cardinals. That is their authority. They just listen to their priests. We don't do that. We go to the Bible. Yet if James Dobson says something, we follow that without checking. If John MacArthur or John Piper or Alistair Begg or Tony Evans, they say something, we take it and we don't check. That puts us as guilty as following tradition because these are men. Now, they're godly men. I believe that they're preaching the Word of God. But that doesn't excuse us for our responsibility to look it up for ourselves. We all have to do that and measure everything. Even what I'm saying to you right now, you must check that according to the truth of God's Word because I'm going to make mistakes. Those men are going to make mistakes. We're all fallible human beings, but God's Word doesn't make mistakes. 
So we have to remember and remind ourselves of that because we can be just as guilty of exalting tradition over the truth of God's word and make our preferences, commandments, that we are just as in danger of Phariseeism today. So we have to say, what does the word of God say? It is written. I remember when I was going through my ordination council and I got ordained to the ministry, and I was confronted with a certain question about um, a preference issue. And they kept peppering me and saying, what is your position? And I said, I, I can't say anything beyond what the Scripture says. And they said, we wish you would reconsider <laughs> their conviction. And I said, I can't go beyond what is written. We, are you, we, they implore you. I said, I understand your position that you're in, and it's not a bad position. You've come to that because of experience, but I can't let experience be the determining factor and trump God's word. I can't. None of us can. But if we do, we are guilty of trusting tradition over the truth of God's word. So that religious people will be regulating righteousness. They'll be trusting in tradition. But it keeps going further. Not just trusting tradition but it goes on to keeping kosher. Keeping kosher. Now, many of us, we're not familiar with the term kosher and everything that it's about it. It's the, it's the way of understanding what food is clean and unclean. Now, let me take you into Judaism for a minute. In the Old Testament, specifically within the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are, certain different, there are actually several different types of laws. And laws can be divided into three different camps. There's the moral law, the ceremonial law that was involved with the prescriptions that were to be involved within the tabernacle and the temple. So you have moral, ceremonial, and civil, how they as a the- theocratic society were to be governed. Now these individuals, though, were keeping kosher, but not just keeping kosher, they were following what was known as the Talmud and the Mishnah. These were extra books that they looked at to determine how to interpret the scripture, and then they followed those wholeheartedly. So they were keeping kosher, they were following what they were to eat, what they were to do, but they were doing it based on tradition, not truth. So we have to be careful of ourselves in the traditions that we follow, even as a church. And, there, and let me say, not all tradition is bad. There are good traditions, and there are bad traditions Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul uses the word tradition to describe uh, practices that we have as Christians. In 1 Corinthians 11.2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Then in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord accord with the tradition that you received from us. So there are different traditions that we have, but we must make sure that as we examine our traditions, that we don't elevate the practice over the principle, and we don't elevate the means over the message. See, when we elevate the means over the message, then we've lost what it means to have that relationship. And when we exalt the practice over the principle behind it, we're in serious, serious danger. Now, I'm looking at this, and as I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm looking at this text, how Jesus responds. Look at verse 5 with me. I mean, we see that they were doing all of these things according to the mission of the Talmud about cleaning different things, keeping koshers, eating certain foods, which Jesus is going to address here in verse 21 and 20. But before that, he responds to them um, to the question. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, verse 5, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, this is this observing outwardly without obeying inwardly. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So then Jesus draws something out, because this is what religious people do. They, can, they confuse the practice with the principle. 
in the means with a message. And then what they do is they, they change things and they're always looking for loopholes. See, look what the Pharisees do. This is what Jesus says to them in verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. You have a familial obligation. That's what he's saying. You have a, a duty to take care of your parents. Now, that's not popular within our world today. Uh, Reuben and I were talking about this yesterday, and I, I love how Reuben, uh, he approaches Scripture, uh, I mean, in a, with different eyes than I can see at times. And he was saying how in the Asian cultures, this is totally different. Did you know that in China, which has a billion people, do you know how many nursing homes there were in the, in the 90s? I think, I can't remember what year it was, but how many in the late 90s, how many nursing homes there were in China? One. Why? Because they see it as a duty to take care of their parents. But these guys, what these guys did is they're looking for a loophole and they're using their godliness to mask their selfishness. You ever done that? Using godliness as a weapon? That's what they do. They're using their godliness to mask their selfishness. Look, look at the text. Verse verse. 10 again, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have given, whatever you would have gained from me as Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So in other words, in order, rather than take care of the responsibilities by showing your godliness, by sacrificing, you are changing and using your godliness to mask your selfishness. We have to be very careful that we're not hiding behind God's Word because we can try to use it to justify our ungodliness. So we must make sure that we're not doing that. Now, the question, though, does come up as we're dealing with this text, and I've had many people over the years ask me the same question, because he's quoting the Old Testament, he's looking at the ceremonial law, and we say, where do we apply, how does the, the Old Testament of value toward us? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I have. Reading the Bible, I read the New Testament, I read the Old Testament, and I, I've heard Christians say, oh, you know, we do this in the Old Testament, yet we don't do that. And I never understood what the principle was because I'd have people come to me and they'd quote Leviticus 19 and they'd say, do not tattoo yourselves. And I'd say, oh, that's a good verse. Look at the verse directly before it, which is don't cut your hair, the corners of your hair. So which, what, you're cutting that one. Why are you choosing this one over that one? What's the criteria? And we as Christians, what do we do with that, with those Old Testament things that we encounter? Well, the key is, and has always been, and always will be, is Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul tells us in Corinthians that all the promises of God find their yes in Him. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus encounters the disciples on the road to Emmaus, He tells them that the law and the prophets testify about Me. They were all pointing to Him, that He is the one who fulfilled all of those laws. That's how He could declare food clean. Because see, there were certain foods that God had declared unclean. Did you know that? Like vultures, certain reptiles, pigs. All of these animals were unclean. They weren't allowed to be eating. They eat them. They weren't kosher. But we see here that Jesus then declares all foods clean, and praise God, I can eat bacon. So glad that God made all foods clean. Man, can't imagine a world without bacon. Some people say it's not good for your heart. Well, I'll go to Jesus faster. Okay, so, so we're looking at this. We're seeing that Jesus declares all foods clean. So He's the one through whom we have to understand the Old Testament. And since all the promises of God find their yes in Him, since He did not come to abolish the law to fulfill the law, then we have to see everything through the lens of His coming. Now, what does that mean? How is that drawn out? 
See, the disciples wrestled with this very question. They wrestled even with understanding of the eating of food. Peter dealt with that when his vision in the book of Acts, when a sheet comes down with all of these unclean animals, and God tells him, get up, Peter, eat. And he said, I've never eaten anything unclean. And it happens two more times after that. We're seeing that God had, was doing something new because of Jesus. That it was no longer the old covenant, but it was the new covenant that Jesus had established by His blood. Now what does that mean then? And how do we understand that? Where do we go to look at that? Well, I would ask you to turn with me, just, just humor me for a minute, because I, I think this is a very important topic that I've seen many Christians struggle with. How do we understand the Old Testament today? Look at Acts chapter 15. Flip there with me for a moment. Acts chapter 15. And there's a situation that gets encountered in the early church because the disciples were dealing with these same questions as they were embarking on this new, new journey because Christianity was brand new. And when Christianity starts off, it wasn't considered to be a religion. It was actually considered to be an offshoot of Judaism, a sect within Judaism. So when these people would come to convert or they would come to be Christians, those who were Jewish said, you have to become like us, which meant, who knows? had to be circumcised. That was the the hallmark of being a Jew. You had to be circumcised. And the scripture was very clear that if any any man was not circumcised, then he was to be cut off from his people because he was rejecting the sign of the covenant of God, which was to be in the most inmost intimate region to show the intimacy that God wanted with man. It's not referring to a sexual relationship, but it's referring to the heart, the most private parts of who we are. So we see this, the church coming together and they're, they're, they're dealing with this question, what do we do? How do we deal with converts? People that are coming to know who Jesus is. Do they need to be circumcised or do they not? So they call the council. It's called the Jerusalem Council. All the leaders from the different churches come together to discuss the question, what do we do? And they debate it. And the Holy Spirit is directing them. And they come to a conclusion. They put it in letter form and then they send it to all the churches. Now, I want us to look at that. Let's look at, we're in Acts chapter 15. Let's look, start off with verse 25. It's the mid part of the letter. I don't want to read all the letter for you. But let's look at verse 25, Acts chapter 15. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, Men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit, very important right here, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. They're boiling it down right now. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from those, you do well, farewell. That's it. They put it all together. So they're saying, you don't have to obey the ceremonial law. You don't have to go to the civil law. But the moral law still stands. And we understand what sexual morality is by the passages within Leviticus chapters 18, 19, 20. And we see that being established. So we have to understand, as we look at the Old Testament and how it applies today through the lens of Jesus that He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law perfectly, that we could not do. That's how we look at the Old Testament. But I digress. Flip back to me to the book of Mark. To the book of Mark. Now I'd like to to stop for a moment, and we've we've finished up looking at religion. Now I'd like to look to focus on relationship. We're going to move through the text, continue to move through the text, looking at it. Relationship, we already talked about what religion says. Religion says that I'm righteous, therefore I'm accepted. Relationship says I am accepted, therefore I'm righteous. I'm accepted, therefore I'm righteous. Here's what we mean by that. We do not have a righteousness on the side of God. Did you know that? There's nothing that Keith Brandt can do. There's nothing that Kyle Kyle Reif can do that could make him righteous in the sight of God. I mean, Kyle could do whatever. I mean, he could go and serve the poor in uh, Cochibamba, or he could go to, you know, any place in Mali or Mauritania or Burkina Faso. He could do any of those, and we would say, wow, how great is that? Look how sacrificial and a great guy 
he is. And he's, wow, he must have points with God. And God says, no. The book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6, says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. There's never, we can never be good enough in the sight of God. Never, ever, ever. But see, Jesus, who is righteous, never sinned. Not once. God made Him who knew no sin, which is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So what happened is when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, He paid the, right, the, the, the requirement of our sin. When He died, He rose again, and then by faith in Him, God then appropriates His righteousness as ours. So what that means is that if we were to look at a ledger, which we've talked about this in the past, and you have debit on this side and credit on this side, you have zero credit in the sight of God. Nothing. Nothing. Now all your sins, though, you've been busy. I mean, you've got a big, giant bank statement. And that if you're doing the drive-thru ATM, you're running out of paper just keeps popping out at you. But see, Jesus didn't have anything in this column, and he had nothing but righteousness filled in this column. So by trusting in him, God, Jesus pays the price for all the sins that you have done in the sight of God, and then appropriates his righteousness as your own. So now that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus in you, and not your sin. You are positionally righteous in the sight of God. Now you're to be progressively growing in your righteousness, Meaning that's why I'm cultivating, I'm training myself to be godly. So we see that we don't have any righteousness on our own. I am accepted, God has accepted me, and and I admit that I'm bankrupt. And then by admitting I'm bankrupt, by admitting that He is the Son of God, that He died for my sins, then I am righteous because of my faith in Him. Because I've accepted His free gift made available in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. You can't boast in the sight of God. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter. God says you can't boast in my presence. We can't boast in the presence of a holy God. He is thrice holy. He is so beyond our comprehension. We wouldn't know who, how to even approach Him if it wasn't for His Word to us. So we see then that we approach God because of Christ and we are coming to Him as sons of God because we have been adopted into God's kingdom. See, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 says it quite clearly. I would, I would ask you to turn with me for a moment just to Ephesians chapter 2. We're, gonna, we're going to see here how all of this kind of flows together in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles. We were all Gentiles, non-Jews. weren't born into the covenant family of God, which meant you had to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near by what Jesus did. That's the thing that we have to understand. We were aliens, we were far off, and God brought us near. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to Mark. See, relationship says I'm accepted, therefore I'm righteous. And relationship involves observing outwardly and obeying inwardly. Observing outwardly and obeying inwardly. We say that God looks at the heart, yeah. But we also mean that He wants us to do things. So it's observing outwardly and obeying inwardly. Now Jesus talked about this in the book of Matthew chapter 5. He was chastising and rebuking the Pharisees. He says, you tithe 
or you give a tenth of your mint, your dill, your cumin. They're tithing spices. Tithing spices. And he says, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice. You should have done the latter without neglecting the former. So he's saying there that I want you to focus on the principle, but don't neglect the practice. Focus on the principle, but don't let, neglect the practice, but don't elevate the practice over the principle. Do you get all that? Peter Piper. Don't elevate the practice over the principle, but keep, keep the practice in line with the principle. Don't let the means take away from the message, but also don't neglect the means. So it means observing outwardly and obeying inwardly. What does that mean? It means having a healthy heart. Having a healthy heart. That's the next point. God wants your heart. You know, God looks at the heart. Man, as we read within 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we talk about the heart. We're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The heart is considered to be the center of one's being. It's a metaphor for representing one's emotion, mind, will, thoughts, passions, all of these things find their home in the heart. Now Jesus, though, is saying that it's out of the heart that we're defiled. It's not about keeping kosher, but it's because of the heart. It's not what we eat that defiles us. It's what comes out of our heart because, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately sick, and who can understand it? We know that. We know that our hearts at its core are, we have got sin in them. I mean, and he gives a pretty big list, does he not? I mean, how many of us were reading that and hearing those words and we just focused on that one word that shows what we're guilty of? Some of them we can neglect, but there's a lot of them that we know, that's me. That's me. See, God wants our heart. He wants to do a heart transplant. See, we've talked about this even with little Kendall. I remember when we were rejoicing uh, with the Brant's granddaughter when we heard that she had a heart. She had a diseased heart. She needed a new heart. We celebrated when we heard that a heart was available, but at the same time, your heart sinks within you because you realize that someone had to die in order for her to have it. See, God says we need a heart transplant. Do you know that? Because our hearts are sick, wicked. But Jesus died for us that we could have his heart. We could have a new heart. We have a new heart that is inclined to do the will of God. That means that flesh isn't gone because, see, the flesh wants to reject that new heart. That's what the flesh wants to do. It wants to push that heart out. It fights against that new heart. And it's war going on within each one of us. And we have to make sure that we are cultivating our spiritual Son of God within us, that new heart that we have by reading the Word of God, by fellowshipping with God's people, by keeping a short account of sin in our life, by making sure that we don't let sin build up, that we confess our sins to God and to one another. These are things that we need to be doing. So God wants a healthy, a healthy heart. That's what He wants. Now what else does He want? What else does God want? He doesn't just want our hearts. He also wants us to be adopting a kingdom agenda. Adopting a kingdom agenda. Now, where do we get that from? Let's look at the text. Let's look at verse 24. Okay? But he's with me in verse 24. And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He went to the region directly north of Israel. Now, he's, we don't know why he went, but he went to get away. Now, Tyre and Sidon, just to, to give you a little idea, they, had, they were a, a, an aggressive very wealthy, affluent region, coastal area that was known for its expansionist policies and also made a lot of money off Jewish workers. Okay? That's what we have before us. And there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. He's trying to get away. Either he needs some time to reflect, he needs a time to, to re-energize, he needs a time to, to communicate with his Heavenly Father. He does that to get, along, get away. He's just trying to get, maybe go to, into a region where they possibly don't know him, but everybody knows him. He's an international celebrity. I mean, everybody wants to get to him. Verse 25, 
But immediately, remember that key word immediately, throughout Mark, we have it about 41 or 42 times. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, this is a demon-possessed little girl, heard of him, or the mother did, and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Mark wants us to understand that she's a Gentile. He's in a pagan region, he's with a Gentile woman, and she is Syrophoenician. He mentions it twice. He is doing that for emphasis. He wants us to understand what is going on culturally that we might have missed. Now this woman begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Woo! That doesn't sound like Jesus that I know. I mean, Jesus that's holding sheep and loving them and walking around. And, you know, this is the Jesus that is just smiling all the time. Jesus just called this woman a dog. What's up with that? Well, what he's saying there, and he's, he's actually, there's two words that are used for dog. There is the, the word that's used for dog that talks about a traveling pack of dogs. But then there's the one that talks about the household pet. And that's the one he's using right here. He's calling her a puppy. And the, the bread that he's talking about is this message. And he said, it's not right. It's for the children first, which meant the people of Israel. Now he is, Paul brings this principle out later, and we have to understand, did you know that we've been grafted in? We just read that in Ephesians chapter 2. We have been brought near in the book of Romans chapter, verse, uh, chapters 9 through 11. Paul explains that we've been grafted in to God's plan of salvation that was originally meant for the Jews. That's why Paul says salvation is for the Jew first, then for the Gentile. So that's what he's saying to her. He's saying that the kingdom agenda involves Jews first and then you. And then she responds. I mean, this is probably an affluent woman. And she's responding. She's not backing down. She's coming to Jesus and she says, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Wow, you got faith. You understand. It's a test. How much do you believe? Now, there's some principles that I'd like us to take out of this. I think that God is showing to us. Now, I don't have these in your notes. You have to write these down. Write these down on the margin to your side. God's kingdom agenda involves a few different things. First of all, it involves crossing cultural contexts. He steps out of Israel and he goes into Tyre Sidon. He steps out of what he was familiar with to go into a world that he was unfamiliar with. How much are we doing that? See, many of us just surround ourselves with other people that look just like us. We talk to people just like us, that dress like us, that shop like us, that go to the same schools as us, that wear the same clothes and do all the same things as us. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go off and go to Zimbabwe immediately, but I'm saying is that we need to be able to cross out of our own cultural context to share Jesus, because Jesus is giving us an example to show that salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's for those who are far off. So we have Jesus, he's crossing cultural context, and he's also breaking geographical boundaries. He's breaking geographical boundaries. Now I've been thinking of this, my heart, I, 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 we need to be reaching people with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus commands us to go into Aurora. Where does he command us to go? All the world. All the world. And I keep thinking of the 1040 window. Some of you are familiar with the 1040 window. Others of you are not. It, this is an area that is described by 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator and stretches from North Africa across to China. It, represent, it represents the centers of faith for 865 million Muslims, 550 million Hindus, 275 million Buddhists, 140 million in the year uh, uh, 140 million and 2,550 tribal groups, which are animist, and 17 million Jews. It represents countries such as Afghanistan, Algeria, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Benin, Bhutan, Burkina Faso, Cambodia, Chad, China, Cyprus, Djibouti, Egypt, Eritrea, Gambia, Greece, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, India, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Japan, Jordan, Kuwait, Laos, Lebanon, Libya, Mali, Malta, Mauritania, Morocco, Myanmar, 
Nepal, Niger, North Korea, Oman, Pakistan, Philippines, Portugal, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Senegal, South Korea, Sudan, Syria, Taiwan, Tajikistan, Thailand, Tunisia, Turkey, Turkmenistan, United Arab Emirates, Vietnam, Western Sahara, and Yemen. What does that mean? It means that we, if we're adopting the kingdom agenda, we need to start praying for these people. You know, one of the most troubling statistics I've heard is that there are 1.3 billion Muslims in the world. It talks about 865 just in that region, 165 million. There are 1.3 billion Muslims in the world, 700 million Hindus, 2 billion people of the 7 billion people within the world. 86% of them don't know one single Christian. Not one. Think about that. Think about how many churches you drive just on the way to get here. Think about how much money we have been blessed with. See, God wants us to adopt His kingdom agenda, and that means reaching the world for His name. And I love how John Piper puts it. Missions exist because worship doesn't. God wants to be worshipped among these people. What are we doing? Are we adopting God's kingdom agenda? Are we willing to cross these geographical boundaries? Are we really willing to reach into different cultural contexts? Are we ready to reach out to different races? You know, it's been said that the most racist place in the United States of America on Sunday morning is the church. Most segregated. It's not how it should be. Heaven's not going to be like that. And if you think heaven's going to be like that, you need to reconsider. It's going to be a mosaic. A mosaic done by the Master. A beautiful place of every tribe, tongue, coming together to worship Jesus. So we, see, we can see that we're to be reaching different races. It also means we're to be loving the lonely. He calls her a dog. Are we willing to love the lowly among us and reach out to them? It's the question we have to ask ourselves. But let's continue on. We're running out of time. We are to be loving the lowly, but we're also to be passionately pursuing our Savior. If we're going to have this relationship, it means we need to be passionately pursuing it. For those that are married, do you remember when you first were dating? Were you passionately pursuing one another? Were you thinking about each other a lot? You know, we laugh at some of these, these younger people because love when you're young makes you stupid. But if we're honest with ourselves, we've been there. <laughs> we were just like that, were we not? I mean, think about it. You, you would do anything. You'd cross, you'd cross oceans to be with that person. You wanted to be together. You'd passionately pursue. You'd do all this romantic stuff that now you're like, why did I do that? <laughs> We need to rekindle that. And I know for those who have been married for a while, you communicate with one another and you want to continue that on because sometimes you say, hey, where'd, where'd the passion go? We've got to kindle that fire again. We've got to kindle that fire for Jesus. Return to our first love. Are we passionately pursuing Jesus? Is he our heartbeat? Is he the one that we desire most? Has our pursuit of him become an obligation and not an opportunity? Are we cultivating that intimacy with him? See, I love that she, she comes to him immediately. She passionately pursues. She comes in and she begs him. She gets down on her knees begging. She's passionately pursuing Jesus. And that's why I love the text in verse 53. Look back at chap- the end of chapter 6 with me. At the end of chapter 6, when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. We intentionally glanced over that at the beginning. We're coming back to that now. Jesus had set the disciples, if you look in verse 45, in that boat on the way to Bethsaida, but the weather got so bad that they drifted off course and ended up going to Gennesaret. And they moored to the shore, and when they got out of the boat, the people, what's the word? Immediately, immediately, they recognized him and ran about the whole region. I love that. They ran about the whole region telling everybody, and everyone comes flocking. This was before Twitter. This is before Twitter. This is before social networking. This is before texting. I mean, these people are literally running to tell other people that Jesus is there. And they're running to Jesus. They're passionately pursuing Him. Are we? I've, I've been there where you're at. I'm not passionately pursuing God the way that I want to all the time. I struggle having a quiet time. There's days that I get up and I go, oh, I'll do it later. And then the day just gets, builds up and it builds up. And then I'm just under this huge load of guilt. 
You ever been like that? I, I've been like that. I'm just being honest. I hate it. I want my life to be more disciplined. I mean, I'd love to get up every morning at 5 a.m. and start just, oh, you know, I, I love that. I'm, my first reaction is this, where's the coffee? I get it through the day. I need to do this. I need to do that. See, but we do, we do need to cultivate it. We have to ask God to change our hearts. I'm asking God to do that with mine and trying to make it a priority. And, and, and there's times that I, I miss it, but I, I don't want to be suffering for guilt because of it. I want to be seeking Him out of delight. And sometimes I read because I don't delight. And I read it out of duty in the hope that as I continue to read, God changes my heart as I do so. I don't know if you've ever been like that. I have. Because I struggle. We all struggle. But we need to keep doing that, keep kindling that fire. And we do that by hearing the Word of God and getting fired up and praying together and being together as a body. And we keep stoking that fire that God has done and made available through His Word. So we're passionately pursuing our Savior. See, these people come running to Him, bringing Him people and saying, if I can just touch the fringe of His garment. And all who touched it were made well. Now here's three, three final points that I want us to take home today. First of all, it's this one. He is available. Jesus is available for you. Did you know that? He's available. He's never busy. His schedule never gets too full. He doesn't have, he's like, well, I don't think I can squeeze you in here. He's always available. And that's what happens to these people. He is available to all of them that come to him. And they, people are coming from all over. And it says, all who touched his garment were made well. He is available. Not only is he available, but he's accessible. He's accessible. Even the Gentile woman who was far off got to Jesus. He is accessible to us. That we could come to him in repentance and faith and plead out our hearts to lay down our pains, our problems, our struggles, and our sins. He is able to do all of those things. And that's the last point. He is able to touch your life and transform us. He is able, if we can just touch the fringe of his garment, he'll, he'll transform us. If we can just get close to him, if we beg of him, if we come to him pleading in faith and petition, he is able to answer, praise God. He is able to save you. He is able to forgive your sin. He is able to speak in your situation. He is able to transform your workplace. He is able to transform your school. He is able to transform our culture. And he is able to transform our hearts. God is in the business of heart change. God is in the business of a heart transplant because his son died to make his heart available to you and me. And he comes to anybody who comes to him in repentance and faith, comes to him humbly petitioning, he will by in no way cast out. Because God is in the business of changing lives. Changing our lives as individuals and changing our lives as a church. He wants to interact with us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to lose our religion to pursue a relationship with him. See, these young people don't need to be going outside of the church. They just need to see authenticity and transformation in your life. They don't need to see the religiosity. They need to see the relationship that you have. They need to make sure that you're not confusing the means with the message and exalting the practice over the principle. They need to see Jesus in you. And if they see Jesus in you working in your life, then they're going to want it. I firmly believe that with the bottom of my heart. That's what God is about. And he is about saving and transforming lives. And I believe that there are individuals in our, in our fellowship today that don't, know yet who know, don't yet know who Jesus is. And if you have not trusted in Jesus, you've been going through religion and not a relationship, I invite you to pray with me right now. And as we're getting ready to pray, I also invite all of us who maybe we, we know we've had that relationship, but we've entered into that realm of religion, say, God, bring my heart back. Set me forth on that trajectory. Please forgive me of my sins and help me to walk with you in integrity and in spirit and in truth, worshiping you and delighting in you and pursuing you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and transforming my life and helping me do what you want me to do. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We love that you gave your son to die on the cross for us. Lord, as we're seeing this passage today, help us not to be like the hypocritical Pharisees. Help us not to be out there regulating righteousness and trusting in tradition, Lord. Help us not to be doing those things, but help us to be cultivating that saving relationship with you. Lord, we don't want man-made religion. We want the relationship that was made available because you sent your son to earth because you loved us. Lord, you love us. Lord, help us to understand what that means. 
Help us to be cultivating that fire and with you, Lord, that time with you. Forgive us when we sin. Forgive us when we mess up. Forgive us when we let our problems keep us from seeing who you are. Lord, forgive us for when we've let sin build up. Lord, please do a heart transplant in us. And if there's, Lord, if there's that one person today who hasn't yet trusted in you, I pray that they might repent of their sin right now. They say, I turn from my sin and I confess you and I, I believe that you are the Son of God that was sent to save me. And I invite you to save me, Lord. We pray that prayer. We ask, Lord, that you use us to be a vehicle of transformation for the people within our community and the world. Lord, help us to adopt your kingdom agenda. Help us to be reaching out and reaching out to different races, to, to, to cross boundaries and cultural context because of your name. Lord, help us to walk by faith in you. Help us to come to faith in you. Lord, help us to just have that faith that says, if I can just touch his garment, Lord, we will be made well. Lord, many of us, we're struggling with so much. Lord, whether it's just the, the private issues of the heart and the sins that have built up, Lord, please let your Holy Spirit be so upon us that we can't rest until we confess and turn to you in godly sorrow. Lord, we know that godly sorrow leads to life, but worldly sorrow leads to regret. Lord, help us to have that godly sorrow. And Lord, may we say, just as they've said so many times within the gospel, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, we ask you to use us as a lighthouse within our community and the world. Lord, transform the world through us. But begin with our own heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good, is he not? God's in the business of transforming lives. That's what I love about Jesus. He's the God of the second chance.